Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Alright, so yeah, we'll talk about the evolution of behavior today. Um, unlike the video we just saw, the biggest problem with looking at the evolution of uh, here, of behavior, is that, uh, well, first of all, yeah, development, genetics, and neurons, uh, you know, and evolution in general. Um, so literally, this is all causal mechanisms, right? All that stuff on organization and behavior, all the stuff on development, the genetic stuff, the, 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 the neural stuff, those are causal things. Those are things that happen in the animal's lifetime. I'm always talking about don't mix up cause and function. Cause is stuff that happens in the animal's lifetime. Function is stuff that is, is about what something accomplished and the evolutionary history of it. So behavior, of course, develops, has a genetic basis, has obviously a neural basis, and it's organized. It has an evolutionary history too, because if it didn't, we wouldn't have originally, up until this year, called this course Evolutionary Approaches to Behavior. Right? It's now called Animal Behavior, which is a much better label, because that's what it is. But behavior has an evolutionary history as well. Right? It must. We can look at this in two, two ways. One of them is looking at the origins of behavior and changes over time, and we can also look at the fitness consequences of behavior. So we can look sort of at the historical pathway of behavior, where, you know, what came from what, what came from what, etc. Just like, you know, in the video we saw, we could look at, uh, you know, uh, looking at the bones of dinosaurs and bones of birds and seeing how similar or different they are from each other. And see how they change over time. And we can do the same thing with behavior. Or we can also look at the fitness consequences. These are clearly related. Uh, the next class will be about, uh, the next topic after we're done evolution behavior will be about adaptations. So it'll be about what the fitness consequences of behavior are. Okay. Because we can look at behavior today and see what's the consequence of that behavior. Does it increase fitness? Because if it does, it's an adaptation. If it doesn't, it can't be an adaptation. Adaptations, by definition, have positive fitness consequences. So everything is an adaptation. You have to remember that. Everything is an adaptation. If it has no fitness consequence, it's not an adaptation. Okay? So that's why... In learning, for example, I talked uh, about adaptive specializations of learning, and you have to say to yourself, is this really an adaptation? Okay, it doesn't really increase fitness. And these are clearly related to ideas. Uh, something has a history, and for it to have evolved, it must have had fitness consequences. But today we're going to look at sort of the historical pathways, whereas next time we will look at the fitness consequences of behavior. So if we want to look, reconstruct evolution, we can always do what we saw in the video, look at the fossil record. There's a problem here. Behavior doesn't fossilize that well. It can. You say, what? Well, we can make some pretty damned good guesses about, say, for example, in animals like 
uh, many of the raptors that we talked about in the, in the, in the uh, video. Sites have been found nest sites. And if we find a mother and a whole bunch of young little hatchlings, we can make a pretty good guess that there was parental care. Right? Obviously. Because if it was just the way a lot of reptiles do things today, it would be layer eggs and leave. But with a lot of these raptors, we see that. There are cases like that. Um, we know, for example, that, or we can make good inferences about human evolution uh, and their behavior by looking at bur uh, bur uh, burial rituals. Because you can see that in some ancient human species, the dead were just left. And in others, they were carefully put in graves. There's a couple of my all-time favorite ones about human evolution we can look, we can think about. There are cases, there's this one case of, uh, I, I think it's Heidelbergensis, Homo, Homo Heidelbergensis, which was a, if one was here, he would, you would know he wasn't a Homo sapien. And he'd probably smell pretty bad because they didn't shower a lot back then. But he looked like a really ugly guy, basically, probably. But there's a, a wonderful um, set of footprints that we found uh, of a, <laughs> this just chokes me up, it's weird, of a mother and a child. And there's footprints. And because of the way that the weight was put differently on the feet, you can tell the mother was holding the kid's hand. And if that doesn't think you go, oh, God, humans are awesome, you don't know anything. And my, that's almost as good as a cave painting that was found. And it's not a painting, but it's a handprint. And it's a father and it's a son. And then they blew red ochre dye, you know? So the guy had the dye and father and son's hand. He's been there forever. 100,000 years ago. People were cool. So we can make guesses about behavior. There you can say, look, there was a bond between a father and son, mother and daughter. That's a pretty amazing thing to say. We can talk about, with the burial rituals, maybe that was religion. That's really fat. The evolution of religion. How the hell are we going to study that? Well, you could. So we can also make guesses there about things like parental care in, in, in some of these raptors. But it usually doesn't fossilize very well. Those are striking examples, but it usually doesn't fossilize very well. The thing we can do is we can use the comparative method. We look at related species. So we're interested in the behavior of species A. So let's take a look at related species B, C, D, and E. We can know how old each species is evolutionarily. That's a lot easier than it used to be, too, because we can use molecular genetic techniques. Uh, you can take a look at one species split off from each other. That's actually... I wouldn't call it trivial, but it's pretty easy to do now. We know the rate of mutation using something called a molecular clock. It's, so we can do carbon dating. We can also use the molecular clock to see the rate of mutation. We can take a look at relatedness. We can see which species is older than which. And see how widespread some behavior is among a bunch of closely related, but evolutionarily uh, younger or older species. Right? widespread, it may have actually evolved in a common ancestor. So let's think of this. Think of birds. I'm going to talk about flight in a little bit. Think about birds. 
they fly. So the common ancestor of the bird probably flew. Pretty good guess. Yeah, I know there are flightless birds, but it's pretty clear they evolved from birds that flew. So you got your emus, your ostriches, your turkeys, and chickens. As God is my witness, I could have sworn that turkeys could fly. WKRP, anybody? No, look for your time. Look that up at some point on YouTube. It was an old TV show. Got a really dysfunctional radio station. And everybody there was an idiot except for like one guy or two people. You see it? Yes. Drop the turkeys, exactly. It's a Thanksgiving promotion, and they're getting away from turkeys, and they decide they're going to drop, they drop live turkeys from a helicopter, and they just all die. And the news guy is describing it. So be careful. In Cincinnati. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they drop it, and then they, uh, he describes it like it's the Indian bird. That's just great. They're falling like bags of wet cement. And it ends with the station manager saying, This guy's my witness. I could have sworn that turkeys could fly. It's one of the classic comedy, channel, uh, comedy shows ever. So, flight in birds, we can say, in the common ancestor birds, which is probably Archaeopteryx, float. If the behavior exists only in one or a few species, it may be relatively new. So, in fact, the relatively new thing in birds is being flightless, isn't it? Not flying. So it's newer to not fly than it is to fly. We can make a good guess there. It would be bizarre if birds evolved from their, their common ancestor was a flightless bird, and then a whole bunch learned to fly all independently. That just seems a little less parsimonious. It doesn't seem less, but it is less parsimonious. Right? This makes sense? So that's some examples. Okay, this is another, this is a great example. This is the ended fly courtship ritual. And there's an ended fly. What happens is the male presents a silk cover, a silk gift to the female. He can spend silk with a lot of uh, bugs can. So he spins some silk and gives it to the female. Uh, by the way, while the female is looking at this wonderful gift, he mounts her and serves a sonata for her. Here's a present, honey. <laughs> it's not a common portrait ritual in insects. Something like this. And in most related species, the female is actually quite a bit larger than the male. Uh, the male very often um, ends up being dinner. So what happens is she gets the cell, he does his thing, and then now she turns around and He's passed his genes on, isn't he? In fact, it's probably helping his genes because he's giving nourishment to the female. So, in fact, you know, you can see how this behavior would evolve. Now, it's not in the male's interest. It would be better for him to 
to get away and do it again if he could. But in a lot of these species, the female's so much bigger that she just ends up, she's quicker, faster, stronger, bigger, she can just eat them. Purely for a meal, there's no other purpose. Well, I mean, like we would love the other purpose to be spite. <laughs> I mean, uh, that wasn't very good for me. <laughs> yeah, I can't mean, think what else it would be, right? So it, it's basically she's just getting a meal. Yeah. But it wouldn't be. It's 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 not like he is contributing to his own fitness by giving up his life, but he'd contribute to it a hell of a lot more if he could leave and go do it again. Because he could go in and get and pass his jeans on again. Okay. Yeah. Have you ever read somewhere that like some of flies, or I don't know if this is the same species, but they used to give like a fly wrapped in silk? Yes. And start giving they the did. ball of silk. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Okay. <laughs> yep. So, in some species, the males present food to the females. This is drastic. So, nothing with silk, just food. He goes in, catches some other bug, gives it to her. It's like taking her out to dinner first. This distracts her long enough that he can insert his spermatophore and leave because she's still eating. This always reminds me of Seinfeld uh, because, you know, when George is, is, he's, he's, uh, decides he's going to eat, he wants to incorporate food into, into sex because he likes eating so much, so he, he likes to... He's got a pastrami sandwich and he's eating it well. And then he says the ultimate thing would be also be able to watch TV, so he pulls up this little TV. And now for the trifecta, he says. And the girl says, well, George, what are you doing? He said, pleasuring you. <laughs> That's just great. I love Seinfeld. So George was distracting the woman, which is probably the only way George and Seinfeld could have ever gotten away. Anyway, did it ever bother you in that show? Like, I mean, maybe I'm nuts. But I'm not a woman, so I don't understand anything about women. In the words of George Costanza, I know less about women than anyone in the world. <laughs> but, uh, how did George get these women that look like models all the time? Hollywood. No, but he wasn't in Hollywood. See, and they, they show he's a loser. He's a short, fat, bald loser. How did he get anyway? I know it's just a TV show. Aha, here you go. Right now, the others adorn the gift with silk. Now, this is going to take longer because now she's got to open the gift. She's got to open the gift. Right? If you want to eat the silk. Oh, you wrapped it yourself? <laughs> no, I just clicked it's a gift on Amazon. <laughs> it also makes the gift conspicuous. Right? So it's obvious. Hey, look, see one of these shiny objects. This is the same species we're talking about. No, these are all different related species. Now, this is putting up some adorning the silk, the silk strands. Then there's others, and so all. We're going from further away uh, related to more closely related to the amplifier, by the way. Others completely covering itself. Now it's going to take a long time to open. <laughs> this is even fun. This is the I love the intermediary technique. 
here. Uh, because this is just bizarre. So eat the gift and then give the female the, the silk. So they actually catch a bug, cover it in silk, open it, eat the bug, and then give the female the silk. <laughs> and this is the most close to the lady one to the amplifier. And then finally we have amplifiers that just give the silk. You can see how that time wasting eventually would be selected against, right? Catch a bug, cover it in silk, open it up. This is kind of like when a guy gives you something that actually he wants. Like what I gave uh, my girlfriend, uh, my wife, you know, my girlfriend at the time, a TV, because she had a TV in her apartment. I thought it was a nice gift, she had a TV. Homer Simpson bowling ball. What's that? Homer Simpson bowling ball. Yeah, but I mean, I honestly thought to myself, how can anyone live without a TV? I didn't understand it. So I bought her a TV for Christmas. It was a big TV, a little cool, right? And I, then I understood that I'd been a jerk. So I thought, okay. I'll make up for it. I bought her a cable box. <laughs> I was 23. I wasn't that right now. I said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tap into your landlord's cable. You give him a cable. You can't do that. Sure I can. You have any tools? <laughs> I just need some pincers. I thought, see, again, this is how stupid I am, and how, again, indicating how little I know about women, I thought this was going to make everything fine. <laughs> And it did, and I really honestly wasn't thinking that I was, clearly, but I wasn't thinking that I was doing this for myself, but then it turned out like I'd go over and play some watch hockey games on TSN. I really didn't do it for that reason. Alright. So that's the amplifier, and again, through all those examples, we're working most distantly related to the amplifier, closest to what I do the amplifier. Now in flight, Archaeopteryx, which means ancient bird, I love that picture there. It's a very Flintstonian looking animal, isn't it? I mean, this is the kind of thing you see on the Flintstones. And there's one of the fossils, uh, like the ones we've seen in the video we had. Now, this is the question you have to ask. If it is the common ancestor of the birds, and most people accept that it is, this is the original bird, did it fly from tree to tree? We know it wasn't a very powerful animal as far as flying is. Because take a look here. Look at the breast, the, the breast muscles, okay? It doesn't really have any. It doesn't look like, think about a songbird, a little chicken or something. It's all breast meat. <coughs> think about a, a turkey or a chicken. You know, think of the size of the white bean, right? So birds have big chests because they have the power, they the power of flight. This thing didn't have a big chest. The bone structure couldn't support it, as I mentioned in the video. So did it fly from tree to tree, or did it run and take off? Because birds, as I'm sure you've seen other birds that do this, they sort of take a couple of steps and they jump and they start flying. Okay? These things about the size of, you know, a Canada goose, the big ones that are down in the park. So it's probably about that big. And you know when they take off, they don't just flap their wings and fly like a chickadee does. They take a couple of steps first, because there's a lot of animal there. 
and they take a little jump and they start flapping their wings and they fly. So they fly like that, or do they just go go from tree to tree, like go up to a tree and then just jump down and soar. They'll go up to the next tree, kind of like a flying squirrel. Rocky the flying squirrel. It had modern wings. As again, you saw in the video, the wing structure was the same as the wing of any bird today, and it had modern feathers. There's nothing sort of, well, they weren't the same as feathers today. If you saw an Archaeopteryx feather, you're seeing the same kind of feathers you'd see coming out of an eagle. Exactly the same. You know, the hollow, the structure of the uh, quills and everything's all exactly the same. Can you see a feather here? It's hard to see the imprint of the feather. The one that had the video had a better picture of the feathers. And the wings, of course, had claws in the end. That's awesome. That would be an awesome thing to see. And once my time machine is complete, we will solve this problem. But I've told you too much about the time machine now. Forget about it. Can't steal my idea. By the way, nobody thinks that dinosaurs, sorry, that birds came from pterosaurs. Pterosaurs uh, were things like, you think of a pterodactyl, that kind of animal? No. Uh, that's a whole different lineage. It's not a dinosaur, it's a pterosaur. Those are They had wings that were basically giant flaps of skin, like a bat. Okay? Um, but they clearly weren't. That wing structure has, is nothing like the wing structure of Archaeopteryx. So they didn't evolve from that. That's a different kind of flying. The kind of flying that birds do and that Archaeopteryx probably did is the same as the kind of flying we see today with birds. So it had reduced muscle mass, as you can see from that picture. Of that artist's conception picture, but also because we know the bone structure couldn't support uh, a chest like a bird has. This suggests that the Archaeopteryx, or as its friends called it, Archie, just soared. It would get up in a tree with the cloth, right? And then jump off like a basically. That kind of idea. So that would work. And then you would use those claws at the end of the, the wings when it gets to the next tree to grab on. Okay? Again, not that flying squirrels have claws. Well, they have little claws, I guess. But they basically jump tree to tree. And when they hit a branch, they kind of grab on. So it's not that different than... You know, if you've ever seen a flying squirrel... Why, why am I using this example? Has anybody here ever actually seen a flying squirrel? Like a couple of you have. Okay, good. So you know what I'm talking about. Besides, of course, Rocky the Flying Squirrel and Bullwinkle the Moose. I'm going to pull a rabbit out of my hat. I can. Move it up my sleeve. Ah, <laughs> oh, that was a good show. That was a good cartoon. That and Roger Ramjet. Have you ever seen that one? Oh, Roger Ramjet was funny. He was a superhero that worked for the Pentagon. This is, and it's in the 60s that this TV show was made, so there's all kinds of little funny jokes in it. Like, for example, if you look on the, the flag at the top of the Pentagon, it wasn't a U.S. flag, it was just a flag with the word war written on it. <laughs> General Brassbottom was the... Uh, Roger, Roger, you're not a hero. 
condition. Now the thing is, we don't know what kind of muscle it had. Because if you look at bird muscle today, if it had that kind of muscle, it just no damn way it could flap its wings and fly. But if it had quick twitch reptilian muscle, they have that muscle has two times the peak power of avian muscle. If that's the case, then it could jump the flight. For a very brief period, it could flap its wings enough to get in the air and then soar. Because it has two times the peak power. The problem is it's not nearly as efficient as bird muscle. Bird muscle is exceedingly efficient. efficient. Right. So it may have had reptilian muscle. So we don't know the answer to that question. Um, and we probably never will. We just can't. Because we'd have to go back in time. Or we'd have to, you know, somehow, you know, get DNA from the, do the old Jurassic Park thing and build an archaeopteryx and see what happens. <laughs> Which would be several levels of cool. But it's not going to be happening. So in this case, perhaps it didn't use, didn't do the, the climbing of the tree idea, which was talked about in the video. Maybe it didn't do that at all. The assumptions always made that because it's a bird, it's considered a bird, it had bird muscle. And it might not have. It might have had muscle that was a lot more like a uh, reptile. Thing is, um, and this is where the guy at the end of the video doing the molecular DNA work, that work suggests that Dinosaur, that, well, birds are warm-blooded, and they're more related to warm-blooded animals than they are to other to, to reptiles. So that the line, that the, 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 the idea that dinosaurs that might have been warm-blooded means they're a lot more, they're a lot different than reptiles. So that kind of kills this idea a little bit here. Because we're talking about reptile muscle, reptilian muscle. Today we're talking about, why does it have two times the peak power? Well, they have to move very quickly sometimes, reptiles, right? But they're, they're cold-blooded animals. So what happens is they very quickly for a very brief period of time and then they have to stop. Not like us, where we can we have to move very quickly for a long period of time. So I, I, I like this one better because it's clever, the idea of the two times of peak power, but I think it's probably the case that it's sort of from tree to tree and use the claws to grab one. But we don't really know. We just don't know. Talk a bit about people standing upright, walking on two feet, something strange that we do. Now, birds do, but no other mammal walks on two feet. Right? Birds kind of have to, but with the other limbs being wings, can't really walk around with them. Uh, chimps are quadrupeds, they walk really on all, on all fours. Um, chimps are our closest living relatives, right? So it makes you wonder what's going on with that. If you look at the, the, the pelvises of various species of hominids, which I have a picture here. So there's a chimp. There's uh, 
Australopithecus afriensis, which is the first uh, biped. This was basically a, 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 an ape man. This looked like, uh, you know, Australopithecus probably looked a lot like a person dressed up in a really good monkey costume. Or ape costume. And you can see it's still, I mean, look at the leg, the, the, the joints here. This is for walking on all fours. This is probably a hunched over animal, Australopithecus, but it was still spending most of the time probably on two feet. And they got us, and our pelvis is built differently than any other extent. Now, and standing up is very likely the key to being who we are. Um, our common ancestor with the chimp was about five million years ago. One lion went off and became us, the other lion goes off and becomes chimps. Chips live in trees, basically, and in the forest, walk on the forest. We went to a different niche. We went to the savannah eventually. Tall grassland. It's sensible to stand up so you can see prey. When you stand up, you need a powerful heart to pump blood uphill, up to your head. Right? And if you're pumping blood uphill to your head, with a powerful heart, you now have all this extra power in your heart. This allows for your brain to grow. This also explains the giant heads we have, big heads of our babies. If you look at the uh, chimp when it's born, baby chimp, it has a the head's a little bit bigger than in relation to body size than you would expect from an adult. But it's nothing like a baby human. Baby human heads are as wide as their shoulders. Right? Think about that. If you had a head like that, your head would be this big. As an adult. Our heads are already huge, and because of the standing up straight, uh, it makes birth very difficult. Human babies aren't finished yet. Right? Think about it. A horse comes up with a walk. Not a human. The standing up and our big heads made it the case so that we had to have all these years of parental care, which then allowed us to have this thing called culture, which is all it all kind of hangs together. We also innovate, of course, again to feed this giant brain. One of the things that we do is we end up uh, being. Our diet is generalist. We're, we're omnivores. We can eat pretty much anything but cellulose we can eat. So anything but wood. Basically, a bark. You can eat it. Just go with three as well. You can eat truck if you want. Is can't digest it. And again, to feed this giant brain, we need sugar. We need fat. We ended up butchering animals. We ended up breaking the bones open and eating the marrow. Which is something no other animal does. Bone marrow is delicious. Roasted. Oh, it's very good. So all this stuff comes together and makes us who we are, but standing up is probably the key thing that allowed us to become human. That literally, 
and cooking. We were able to, uh, eating uh, cooked food is much more efficient eating raw food because some of the proteins are already eaten. So it's easier to digest cooked food. So the, the uh, advent of cooking made a huge leap to us too. Never understood this raw food movement. Have you heard about the raw food movement? People yeah. only eat raw food? I don't get it. Okay. Isn't it just supposed to be healthier for you? Yeah, but how can it be healthy? I'm not saying I'm living. No, I'm not saying you are either. I just don't understand how it can be healthier. Isn't it that if foods aren't cooking, you're putting more nutrients? It's better to steam vegetables than to boil them. Oh, yeah, I'm not saying you should boil shit. Food, yeah. I like Yeah. Well, they have, then they have no joy in their lives. Yeah. <laughs> so uncooked food that has no butter. I mean, just talking about raw food or just or vegan? Uh, vegans are different. Vegans eat cooked food. That's what I thought she was talking about milk and butter. Yeah. No, the way often people don't because it's processed. Well, it's funny to think that if we kept living like they did fifty thousand years ago, we'd still be living like we were fifty thousand years ago. Just interesting. But that natural isn't always right or good anyway. It's a naturalistic fallacy. It's like when people say to me, uh, I talk about uh, in neurofarm, and they talk about how they'll, they'll only take natural drugs like marijuana and, 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 and magic mushrooms. And I say to them, you know, that's fine. Um, you only like natural things? Oh, yeah. Really? It's the only. So natural's good? Well, yeah. What about a pile of shit? That's pretty natural. Would you eat that? It's natural. Stupid. I mean, it's not an argument, that's all. My other favorite word is organic. All food is organic. It's full of organic compounds. Get a better word. Co-opting English, damn it. I have a problem with organic food, except that it doesn't taste any different than organic food. She watches an episode of Penn Teller Bullshit about um, organic food, and it's great. They go to this market, and they tell people that they have organic and non-organic bananas and stuff like that. It's all the same banana. And people were eating it going, oh, yeah, this would taste much more like a banana. <laughs> you know, it's the same one. We just cut it out in half. And, <laughs> really? Well, yeah, okay. Well, I'm going to go back in here and buy more. People, people are amazing. Um, I talked a bit about Ness Parasitism and Calvert's fascinating behavior. Um, it makes sense that this would start out as a specialist strategy, wouldn't it? That one species... Of, of cowbird is going after one kind of animal, one kind of uh, like parasitizing one other bird's nests. That just sort of follows. Makes sense anyway. Generalist seems more complicated behavior. Sure. So the more recent the cowbird, the more of a generalist it should be. The more recent evolutionarily a cowbird has shown up, the more generalist in its uh, nest, parasiti- yeah, nest parasitizing behavior. The nice thing here is the DNA studies have shown this to be true. So these molecular methods that are available now have allowed us, like you saw in the, in the video, have allowed us to look at how related different species are and determine as you can see here, this is uh, Landian's work. I really like this stuff. 
Um, we go from the generalist strategy, sorry, the, the uh, specialist strategy to, to generalist. This is how many species these different cowbirds parasitize. We go from one all the way to 216. And the beautiful thing about this is what Lanyon and, and colleagues did is they did a DNA study. They looked at the relatedness of these animals. Then they could reconstruct how old they are. Uh, how, so when one show up or another. And there's, this one here is just an outgroup. That's something that's, this is closely related. This is the common ancestor of all cowbirds and of some other birds. That's the outgroup, okay? And then we go from this guy here, Lazarus, whatever, all the way up to, uh, that's the brown-headed cowbird right here. And that's the one that does 216 different nests. The different species nests. Yeah, this has been a huge thing in taxonomy recently, uh, molecular genetics. All the taxonomy of birds changed in 1991, for example, or 1990. Simply and did this thing where they just looked at the DNA of every freaking bird. And this is when all the birds, uh, if you know, you probably don't follow bird taxonomy, right? Okay. Uh, what happened was a lot of names of species changed, the Latin names. Uh, and this happened in 1990, because Sibley and Alquist basically, the book, the book is like this thing. And it's just like, we're redoing the taxonomy of birds because of DNA. And it pissed a lot of us off. It's just like, I know a bunch of species names, they've changed them all. Ornithologists are usually kind of crazy. And German. Yes. It's true they're, they're often German. Uh, and also, ornithologists are as crazy as, like, I think, like, birders, people who just go watching birds, are a little bit nuts. You know? <laughs> Not all of them. I know have friends that are big into it. You know? Um, people always ask me, though, Did, are you a birder? No. I don't study birds. I study problems, I would say. You know? And, my, my mom, to this day, what kind of birds are they? I don't know, mom. <laughs> I can spot a chickadee, and I can tell you what kind of chickadee it is from 500 meters away by the damn call it's making, but that's because I worked with chickadees for so long. Well, what's that? I don't know. Let's see. Let's, well, let's see. Why don't we type it into Google and find out? <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. But, you know, but yeah, I found that, uh, I haven't met a lot of ornithologists, but I've heard that. You just said and like I said, birders, well, it's like any people are intensely into a hobby, I guess. You know, I mean, people think I'm weird that I get all excited about video games coming out, so it's... What the hell? So some conclusions about this stuff. You can reconstruct the evolution of behavior in a trait using comparative method. And that's what I was talking about today. Right? And this comparative method looks at how related or unrelated different species are, and then looks at the behavior. It could be also looking at uh, instead of behavior, you could be looking at physiology and anatomy, etc. You can never be entirely sure. And we still will never know about the history of flight. We just won't know. With the epic flies, we can reconstruct that pretty nicely because we have all these species, but something that the, the ancestor is gone, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. Until someone figures out a way to get dinosaur DNA, we just that's not on the horizon. So these molecular methods though can easily help uh, with behavior. When we looked at the uh, 
necessarily the cowbirds, and also even, frankly, looking at the evolution of flight and looking at are these warm-blooded or cold-blooded animals, it even had something to say there. So the new molecular methods are huge things. Um, what that guy was doing in that video was he was, uh, you know that injection he was looking at, injection he took? It's a whole bunch of genetic material, and then they mark certain, um, they put a radioactive marker in the, in the genes, and then they separate it, and then you take, put, you put photographic film in front of it, and that's when you see those bands that go out, and they're looking at DNA fingerprinting, as they call it. That's what he was doing there. And it falls basically at different weight, uh, rates depending on the weight of the of the gene. It's very podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.